You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Matt Taibbi is a contributing editor to Rolling Stone. He's the author of Smells Like Dead Elephants, Spanking the Donkey, and The Great Derangement. His new book is Griftopia, Bubble Machines, Vampire Squids, and the Long Calm That is Breaking America. Thank you for joining me, Matt. Thank you very much for having me on. Matt, you know, as as I looked at this book, actually, I was trying to help somebody in a bookstore find it and it was under business and this is Uh certainly about business and then as I read it it's clearly about politics because we immediately get plunged into the tea party and then as it goes on um, it's also really about economics that we you really do a great examination of the economy but what this book is to me seems to be really about this is a book about crime. Oh, right. And this is a book where about criminals who are so big in scale. They're like a James Bondian style villains. These people right. are beyond arch villains. And you know, you could have called this book Goldman Finger. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's actually very perceptive. This is the way I, I approached writing it was really like the mother of all true crime stories, you know, because I, I, I really do see this as um, you know, it, it's a it's a crime tale, and but the politics are part of it, and that's that's kind of uh, it, it's an essential element of the crime is the political deception, the the this manipulation of people to support their their policies, uh, their deregulatory uh, you know initiatives. That's all part of the crime scheme, uh, and it's 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 not so much a political movement that has elements of crime in it as a as a criminal enterprise that has elements of politics in it. These are people who are smart enough to get the laws rewritten so that they're not actually breaking laws. Right. I mean, that's the trick at this level of the game. isn't Isn't uh, getting away with crime? It's making your crimes legal. I mean, that's that's what this is really all about. Um, they, but what's interesting is that even that wasn't good enough. They actually had to go off and and still commit crimes on top of on top of making things that should be criminal illegal. They went ahead and committed fraud anyway. This book begins with the the assertion that the Tea Party doesn't matter, and, and that's an interesting thing to read in in light of the election. But you, by the end of the book, it's clear why you say that. Well, what I'm really trying to say is that. Uh, clearly, the Tea Party does matter in terms of social issues and immigration and a, and, a, and a whole variety of things that have nothing to do with the economy or or finance. But when it comes down to the stuff we're talking about in this book, financial deregulation, the policing of Wall Street, the Democrats and the Republicans really don't have any major differences. Uh, and the Tea Party, to me, is really it's a giant distraction. It's it's a way. Uh, I, I think that Wall Street saw this this movement sort of organically growing out uh, in the population, and they they were very very excited to see that there was this movement out there that was interested in getting government off their back. Uh, in, in addition to getting off their own backs, uh, people had this idea that that somehow the government was interfering uh, unduly with Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase, and that that was what had caused the financial crisis. And I think these guys love that. You know, one of the things I think that's so interesting is the way you describe this um, as that for you, I think politics is kind of like bread and circuses to keep us all these social wedge issues, keep us distracted from where the real things that matter to our lives on a day to day basis are going. Yeah, I I mean, that's that's the point of view I came around to. I mean, I had covered both the 2004 and 2008 presidential election campaigns, I had to go on the campaign trail bus and and do the whole boys in the bus thing and did the whole blue versus red, all those various dramas with Re- Reverend Wright and Barack Obama's lapel pin. And after a while, it, start, it started to occur to me that all this stuff, I, throughout the entire time, I had this sense that this... It can't really be this stupid. There has there has to be a darker, deeper, more complex story underneath all of this somewhere. 
And to me, the finance thing is, is it. That, that's, that's the reality. That's the hardcore politics where we decide who wins, who loses, who gets money, who doesn't get money. And that stuff has nothing to do with the, the, the politics. The thing that we call politics on TV doesn't even touch that. You know, one of the things that's so interesting about this book is the way that you point out, even yourself, how the press does not understand the economic situation, these underlying economic forces, and, and they're completely oblivious. And you were yourself, as you say, at the beginning yeah. of the book. Yeah, no, I, I, on the campaign trail, I mean, I know because I was part of it, and, and I still will be again in 2012. Uh, we are basically, our, our response to the economy is we look at a couple of numbers. We look at unemployment, and then we look at the stock market. If the stock market's going up, we tend to say that the economy's doing well. And that's really the extent of our entire understanding of the economy. And I, I had this real epiphany in, in the middle of this one. Uh, McCain was doing his whole drill baby drill speech at one point in uh, in Kenner, Louisiana. And afterwards, all the reporters were, were picking on him saying, oh, you know, John McCain, what a moron, as though our failure to drill in the Gulf of Mexico is what was causing the high gas prices that summer. And I kind of raised my hand and said, do we actually know what's causing the high gas prices this summer? And, you know, nobody knew. I didn't know, you know, and and it, it really struck me at that moment that I, that I was a fraud, that I was covering the economy. I didn't absolutely know no idea what I was talking about. Uh, and that was kind of the genesis of, for me of, of you know, why I, I, th- I felt I had to go research this stuff. You know, as a financial reporter, you have a really uh, unusual style, and I would liken it the difference between you and the majority of the kind of reporting is if the majority of the reporting is in the John le Carre style, dense and hard to understand, you're Elmore Leonard. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that happens with financial reporters is that they their target audience is the people they're covering. I mean, when they're writing... Uh, their stories. They're writing for people who understand finance, you know, the, who, who are working in the world. It's kind of like ESPN. Like ESPN isn't for people who don't know the rules of football. You know, you, you, it, they don't have to stop and tell you what a blitz is in the middle of, of, uh, of the Sunday NFL countdown. Or I tried to, I tried to make this accessible and, you know, to ordinary people who had no um, background in any of this and to sort of bring it to that audience. Now, you take us, uh, introduce us to Alan Greenspan, <laughs> whom you describe in a term that we can't broadcast on the radio. I know, yeah, not, not fit for public radio, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, talk about it. Just absolutely flabbergasted me that he used to hang out with Ayn Rand. I that know. is frightening. Right, right. Yeah, no, he, it, he, he's a... He's a fascinating character, and I thought he was the perfect person to really start off the discussion of what had gone on on, on Wall Street in the last 20 years because he embodies this incredible, in his, in, his, in his personality, this incredible contradiction. On the one hand, he hung out with Ayn Rand, like you said, and he, he was this objectivist thinker, uh, ostensibly, that believed that government had no place at all in, in business and, and there should be no regulation of anything. Uh, the go- government should be limited entirely to armed forces and police, and that's it. And on the other hand, he ended up being the chief regulator of the entire economy, and he also built this massive welfare state for Wall Street, uh, you know, that th- where uh, in these guys essentially used the Fed as a kind of permanent bailout mechanism to make themselves well again every time they got in, involved in a speculative bubble. So it was this incredible contradiction of pure unfettered capitalism on the one hand, on the other hand, this total welfare state, uh, all in the same person, which was really interesting. Well, yeah. And one of the things that you point out in here is that on Rand is like the mother of the choose your own facts generation. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, that's what the whole idea of objectivity is. You know, facts are facts is, is one of their uh, is the first part of their whole theology. And, and what that means, as far as I can tell, is the facts that I choose are facts and the facts that you choose are not facts. Uh, but that was that was an early precursor to the whole George Bush idea of, you know, we're in the reality making business. Uh, you know, these guys were able to construct their own uh, version of reality. And I think that was reflected on Wall Street. They, they basically invented an economic reality for themselves. And that's how they made a lot of their money. Well, Greenspan is such a fascinating character. And I think he's in many ways, I, 
he's like the inception point for what we now call regulatory capture. Right. And, and he or the you know the the Fox Henhouse Initiative, <laughs> and, and to put as you mentioned to put a man who did not believe in the Federal Reserve in charge of the Federal Reserve is scary. Yeah, it was complete and utter lunacy, and he and he spent uh, most of the last parts of his of his reign in the Federal Reserve frantically trying to undo his own regulatory authority. Uh, you know, and then there were, of course was the. Uh, his efforts to repeal the Glass-Steagall Act in the late 90, 1990s, which was this law that had been passed in the Roosevelt years to prevent insurance companies, commercial banks, and investment banks from merging. Um, Citigroup wanted to merge, uh, and they went ahead and did the merger. They went to Greenspan, and Greenspan sort of he approved the illegal merger and then convinced the, the Congress and the, and the White House to, to, to pass a law to make it all legal. And that that's a perfect example of what you're talking about with regulatory capture. This was a, a group of financial interests that wanted to do something that was illegal, and they appealed to uh, you know, a, a regulatory official who made it who made it legal, sort of ex post factum, which was just fascinating. It, it's so interesting that these people don't worry about breaking the laws; they just rewrite them. They just rewrite them on the fly. Have yeah. them rewritten. Yeah. And, and it's interesting too that um, what you point out about Greenspan, he's been so revered and put on so many pedestals. You mentioned the Time cover with with him in in uh, Committee to Save the World. Committee to Save the World. It's really scary. It's like Right. Old finger doctor, no. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and they're repeating it now with Bernanke. I mean, he got person of the year too, uh, you know, recently. So, you know. It's, it's scary stuff. And, and what interests me is how, as you point out, a Greenspan could not even predict the present. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, he, he, he consistently made predictions. He would say, for instance, that the... Um, you know, the worst part of the, of the recession was already over and it was only just beginning. Or uh, he had this one great quote famously, and I guess it was 1974, where he said, you, you, there was, there's never been a time where you could be as unqualifiedly bullish as we are now. Uh, this was, and then within the next 12 months, the stock market lost 40% of its value or something like that. He had this incredible record of, of choosing, of making absolutely the wrong predictions. And yet he somehow had this reputation for being a financial genius and a prognosticator of the first order, um, which was a, uh, he was really one of the first uh, people who, who used the press to create uh, an image for himself that had no, abs- no correlation to reality whatsoever. Uh, I, it's, I think, unfortunate for our economy, the, this nation and the world, that he wasn't like a handsome, good-looking guy. <laughs> <laughs> he might have been an actor or something. Right, and, right. And could yeah, have satisfied yeah. that need otherwise because in his somewhat dweeby presence, he had to assert himself in this financial world. And that's one of the things I think that you do very well in this book is create characters. As a writer, you've got to create characters. And the character of Alan Greenspan is fascinating. So talk about writing that up. And your process, your approach as a writer um, in terms of revising this this stuff. Well, uh, clearly... I mean, as you know, this material is very dense. It's mm-hmm. it's boring to a lot of people. Uh, it's off-putting. You know, pe- people even hear commodities or the Federal Reserve. They are their eyes start to glaze over. So uh, I knew ahead of time that you have to use some narrative techniques, some fiction writing techniques, in order to create uh, a, a drama, a narrative process that people could get themselves hooked into. And I would, it would almost be like force-feeding them the education almost surreptitiously in the, in the middle of it. Um, you know, Goldman Sachs, for instance, I, I kind of made them into this James Bondian villain. I didn't have to change any facts because, you know, as I say, it had the advantage of being true that they really were that villain. But uh, I definitely played that up. And in, in Greenspan's case, again, I just thought his personality was, it was so important to understand the contradictions in this guy's personality because they were reflective in our in our our, our entire attitudes towards the economy. We we as a country really believe in this whole hands off business idea. Where at this at the same time we are frantically bailing out business, uh, you know, with our tax money, and and that contradiction is now rooted. In, it's it's in everybody, not just Alan Greenspan. Now, one of the things I think that's very interesting. Uh, about this book is also you're a character in it too, and you portray yourself as kind of an outsider. Yeah, I think um, 
clearly I had no background in any of this when I first started doing it. I mean, I, I, I tell the reader at the outset that my, when I started down that whole process, which was at that McCain speech, and I thought as I was writing it that because um, I was going through this very exciting process of discovery and learning all of, of what how all these things worked, and I wanted that excitement and that that passion and that that kind of uh, thrill of solving a mystery to come through in the book. I, wa- I wanted the reader to sort of take part in that a little bit too. And so yeah, I mean, I did make myself a little bit of a character in the book, and I I, I think it added a little bit to it. Well, it it really does make it kind of give you give us a through line, and you're kind of our detective right. in in charge. Now, one of the things you do well is you use uh, this is one of your main writing techniques is to use metaphors and similes. And the the one that comes up all the time is the casino. So let's start talking about the internet bubble and the casino. This is uh, <laughs> you said this is that um, one of the things that uh, Greenspan said was that this was that or deduced was that this was a happy stage of history where a BS could be used for rocket fuel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the the internet bubble was all about the, the banks on Wall Street. You know, it used to be that when you took a company public, a company had to have existed for five years. It had to have been profitable for three years. It had to be making money at the time of the IPO. There were all these standards they had for underwriting uh, before before the 90s when they in taking companies public no decent upstanding investment bank would just take a bunch of ideas scribbled on a napkin by some pimply kid in college and and call that a business plan but they they threw that out the window in the 90s and you had all these these internet companies that came to market and were made into uh you know they, they were taken public and that's that's when greenspan came out with this famous pronouncement that we have a new way of measuring the value of companies now. It's not how much money they make. It's not what their 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 revenues are versus their 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 liabilities. It's how good is the idea. Uh, do we think this is a good idea? How many other people are going to bet on this idea? Um, and that's really what that's really what it's all about. It it, it, it they transform Wall Street into um, uh, from a place where people were trying to measure the value of companies to a place where people were trying to guess how many other bettors were going to bet on that particular property. And that's what it became all about. You know, it's so interesting uh, when you talk about uh, Brooksley Bourne and the the her her work with uh, the Glass-Steagall. And, and so talk about that and also about the Greenspan put. I love this idea of the Greenspan put, which is frightening, of course. You know, the Greenspan put, just first of all, is is, a, is this amazing idea. Every time when Greenspan was the Fed chairman, every time there was some kind of speculative mess, uh, you know, beginning with the stock market crash in 87, then there was the internet stock bubble uh, that blew up in 2001, 2002. There was also the the emerging markets crash in 98, the long-term capital management mess, even the Y2K phenomenon. Every time there was some kind of trouble on Wall Street, Greenspan would slash interest rates to nothing. And essentially, the term Wall Street guys kept using for me was they allowed them to drink themselves sober. They would they would be able to borrow money for nothing uh, and get themselves out of the mess they had, uh, they had put themselves into. And this this became a concept that was talked about on Wall Street. It was called the Greenspan put. In other words, they believe, they knew that every time they got themselves into trouble, they could that that Greenspan was going to bail them out. Now, a put option is just it's it gives you the right to sell a stock at a certain price. Uh, so you know if you you can buy IBM at puts at 95 that way you know if it goes down to 88 you can still sell it at 95 and make a profit. Well, that's that that's the same idea with Greenspan. You always knew that there was a floor. To the to the market, and that he was going to provide you with that floor, and that was a that was an important psychological development, because it encouraged these guys to behave irresponsibly. That was the the famous moral hazard, right? Yeah, that Volcker was talking about, and it's absolutely true. I mean, the, even even the fact that they talked about it was proof that it was true. Uh, <laughs> they, the fact that they believed that it was true was was the proof. You know, one of the things that I thought found really fascinating was was the your description <clears throat> of the the real estate bubble. And you take this like a, 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 in many ways, like a very much of a t- detective story. So, so tell us a, a, about the 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 man who um, goes uh, to and sells uh, a couple 
a mortgage, and he befriends these people. It's a really fascinating story. Solomon. Yes, uh, I forget what Solomon his name Edwards. Is. Solomon Edwards. Yeah, actually, that's, I changed the name uh, for legal reasons. But uh, we, we, what I try to do in the book is I try to trace the mortgage bubble from uh, a single transaction involving a poor black couple in Boston, all the way up to the AIG bailout. And I tried to show that there was a, there was literally a scam every step of the way, from the lowest link in the chain to the highest link in the chain. Somebody was ripping somebody off. And it all began with these predatory lenders at the lowest level, and they would find, you know, the tail was really wagging the dog here. People have this idea that the government was forcing banks to lend to these people. The reality was the banks had figured out a way to take loans from low-income people, these subprime loans, throw them all in big buckets, like hundreds or thousands at a time, chop them up into securities, get the ratings agencies to call them AAA-rated products, and then sell them off to third parties like Chinese sovereign wealth funds or uh, pension funds or, or trade unions. And so they had a market for subprime mortgages. They needed warm bodies to sign their names in the dotted line that they could, they could just take these loans and chop them off and sell them to somebody else. So they encouraged the country rides of the world and these, lo- these small-time brokers like Solomon Edwards to go out and get people to get mortgages at all costs. It didn't matter how, but they had to get them on the dotted line. And they would get people who qualified for fixed mortgages into risky option mortgages. Uh, they got they they phonied up the appraisals to make uh, the houses look more valuable, and then they gave them more loan uh, so that they could buy the house, even though the appraisal was inflated. There were a million different scams to get people in these houses, and the whole idea was to create loans to sell off to some sucker overseas or or in a pension fund somewhere who didn't know what it was. Well, some of these adjustable rate mortgages were were just phenomenally bizarre. You describe one where where the person who's in the house, their payment isn't even it's not paying the interest. It's just every payment is more borrowing. Explain how that works. That's so yeah, yeah. These uh, interest only. Uh, I forget. I forget what it's called now. But essentially, they had, they had people who were basically making one percent payments for. Uh, you know, the, the mortgage rate might be 5%, and they were literally paying uh, not only interest only, but, but 20% of interest only for the first couple of years. You're essentially not making a payment. You're actually borrowing money uh, every month. So if the actual payment was $600, you might have somebody who was uh, negative amortization. That was, that's what it was called. Uh, <laughs> and you would, if your payment was $600 a month or $800 a month, you might only pay 150 for two years. And at the end of that two years you would have to start paying down that money that you didn't pay each one of those months in the meantime on top of the loan for the entire house. So you were actually borrowing over and above the value of the entire house. It was total insanity. But they told these people, you can do this, and then two years down the road you can refinance and just start all over again. Uh, And so they thought it was a good deal. You know, what? that was what was so interesting to me was that um, one of the things you say in the book is that you think a lot of these people wanted to walk away. A lot of these people just intended to walk away after a couple of years. But I, I actually think, too, in that run-up of the housing bubble, that a lot of these people kind of expected some kind of financial rapture to de- descend upon right. them. <laughs> and and all of a sudden, they be just would be making buckets of money somehow to pay for this. Well, that was the atmosphere. They were all told that, hey, this is a new age. It's like that Greenspan. We're in a new era. We're in a new paradigm. You know, the <laughs> prices are going to go up forever. You know, you never have to worry about risk. If you buy this house today, it's going to be worth more tomorrow. So you might as well buy, you know, not one house, but two or three. You know, it doesn't matter. You, who cares if you only have Social Security for income? Just keep buying. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll give you unlimited credit. Uh, we'll falsify your credit scores to help you get the loan. It doesn't matter. Uh, and people, they were caught up in this insane euphoria but what they they didn't they weren't fully in on the in on the scam. They were still stuck holding this paper at the end of the day. Whereas the banks, as soon as they got these loans, they were shipping them off to somebody else ten minutes later and passing the buck. That's what they didn't get. One of the things that's really great you talk about Andy B. and he, you Andy B. is one of your is uh, one of your people. Talk about what he did be with. And this is really great the way that they would cut these loans up into three parts and then add the bottom parts back in together and keep getting top parts. Out out of the bottoms. It's like turning garbage into gold. It's this unbelievable process. Typically, when you had these CDOs, these collateralized debt obligations or collateralized mortgage obligations, basically you were taking big piles of mortgages and you were chopping them up into levels, right? And 
tranches, right? Tranches. And you essentially you were saying 99% of the time, 20% of these loans will never fail, all right? Or we're going to get at least 20, 20% of the money into this bucket every month. So that 20% part is AAA, right? We can sell that to a bank as as a triple A rated bond. And then there's the junk part that's below that, which pays very high rates of return. And that those were very much in demand. Uh, and, they, and those went out. Uh, a lot of people bought those very, very quickly, but they were often stuck with the middle parts, the BBB parts, uh, which were risky, but they didn't pay a whole lot. So what did they do? They used this thing called the CDO squared, where they, it's exactly as you said, they took all the middle parts, they threw them into a bucket again, they shook them up and applied the same math all over again. And they said, 99% of the time, 20% of these loans aren't going to fail, and you got AAA again, and then there was junk again, and then they then they did it a third time until there was nothing left. Now, I, I want you to talk about AIG because uh, the this this uh, is has two really great villains in it, uh, uh, Joe Cassano and, and Win Nuger. Yeah. Nuger, what a great name. <laughs> <laughs> you could just... See the mustache twiddling going on there. Yeah, yeah the Doctor Evil. Yeah, yeah. one billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, um, both of those guys were fascinating. Cassano, he was essentially the bookie of Wall Street when uh, this all this mortgage stuff was going on. A lot of these banks realized pretty quick that these mortgage-backed securities were going to blow up eventually, and so they wanted to place bets against it. So they went and looking for somebody who would take the action. Uh, and bet on these mortgages. And Cassano essentially was that guy. He he bet $440 billion on the mortgage market. He took uh, he issued these credit default swaps, which were essentially bets. Uh, and he didn't have really a dime to back it up. And it was all banks like Goldman Sachs and Deutsche uh, and Bank Societe Generale. They were all betting on this stuff to blow up. Cassano was taking the action that it was, that it was going to keep going up forever. And he basically blew up the universe. That 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 four hundred and forty billion dollar bet that he couldn't back up is what we ended up having to bail out. That was why AIG had to get bailed out, and uh, and that was what started the sort of implosion of the two thousand and eight crash. And then the other side, there was Win Nuger, who was running the bank's uh, securities lending operation. This is very very complicated, but securities lending is essentially a very simple business. It has been for ages, where you an insurance company that has a whole masses of securities lends them out to banks to, for short sellers to use, and they get a small cash payment sort of in return uh, in collateral. And they typically would invest that in treasuries or something extremely safe, uh, because when you're lending out securities, you might have to take them back at any moment. You can't have long-term investments with this stuff. Nuger decided that he, he wanted to make a billion dollars. He called it 1,000, what was it, 1,000? The 10-cube cube. 10-cube, 10 cube, 10 cube, that was his goal. <laughs> uh, and he he took this all this money in collateral, and he invested it in mortgage-backed securities, the, the riskiest, craziest stuff you can imagine. And that blew up in his face, too. And we ended up bailing out something like $46 billion worth of that stuff. And he's, he's a little-known villain in this crisis. Well, you have to create this great scene with the, uh, a, a giant showdown with the Texas Insurance Commissioner. And this is the September 13th and 14th meeting with AIG. And then and that's when we first see Goldman. Finger. Right, right. <laughs> and we don't know. And what's so great about the way you structure the book and the way that you write it, Goldman is still at that point. We don't know what their backstory is. Right, right. But, but we we do find out. Yeah, this is this moment where, again, there was this uh, AIG had lent out billions and billions of dollars worth of, the, of these securities uh, to all these different banks through that Win Nuger securities lending business. And the banks like Goldman that had a lot of these securities, um, they were all upset that the other guy, Cassano, was not paying them their money back uh, on these credit default swap deals, on these mortgage bets. And so they started returning all these securities to Win Nuger's end of the business as a means of incentivizing AIG to pay their bill. It was sort of like it was sort of like setting one house end of a guy's house on fire so that somebody on the other wing of the, of the building will pay your bets. Uh, and there was a moment in time there where if the banks had returned enough of these securities and forced uh, AIG to come up with a lot of money to pay pay these banks off, that it would have it could have rendered uh, the 
personal insurance policies of thousands of ordinary Americans worthless or they would have been seized by the government. It would have been this massive Main Street disaster. And Goldman was hanging, holding that over the heads of the Federal Reserve. They were basically saying, if you don't find a way to get AIG to pay us our money, if you don't bail us out, uh, we're going to create this disaster. I mean, they didn't say it overtly, but that was the implied situation there. And that was that was that showdown where basically Blank Fund refused to back down and refused to to take a lesser deal uh, and and prevent that disaster. Oric Blank Fine. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that. yeah. It's really it's something out of like a sci-fi movie. It's really crazy. Now, one of the things that you do in this book, I think really well, I've never understood what the commodity markets were. And you do a great job of making that crystal clear. You know, I'd, I'd hear things about pork bellies and I'd wonder, you know, what the heck is that? And, and uh, this is by way of explaining how, uh, the, how the same people who uh, brought us brought to you by the same people who brought you the internet bubble, the real estate bubble, right. now bring you the oil price commodity bubble. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. The 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 uh, the price spikes of 2008 and all I really was trying to do was was get a handle on why gas prices had gone up. And I found out that there had been a very tightly regulated market where most of the people who were buying and selling commodities were supposed to be what they called physical hedgers. They were supposed to be either producers or consumers of the actual commodities. They either had to make corn or use corn. They had to make, you know, drill for oil or they were consuming oil somehow. Only a small part of the people in this market were supposed to be speculators because they didn't want speculators coming in and buying the whole market and rigging the prices, obviously. So, um, but what ended up happening in the early 90s was that um, a lot of these companies quietly applied to the government for exemptions to these rules, and they, banks that were speculators got asked to be treated as physical hedgers, as real consumers. And Goldman was the first one. Uh, their subsidiary, Jay Aaron, got the first exemption in 1991. And what happened was, in 2001, there was only $13 billion of speculative money on the, on the commodities market. By 2008, there were over $200 billion. And all that money went to betting on commodities prices to go up. And so they went up, uh, unlike the stock market where you can bet for or against uh, stocks uh, and commodities, all the money's long money. It's all betting on the stuff to go up. And that's why we saw a, a rise in gas prices. Uh, demand was actually down that year and, and supply was up. Prices should have been going down. Instead, of they went they went up. You know, it's so interesting, too, the way that uh, you, you talk about this and describe it. It's such a great case of, of uh, again, of regulatory capture, where they actually had to, when somebody found out about this, uh, they, the CFTC was asking permission for Goldman Sachs. <laughs> yeah. they had to, they, these people who are supposed to be regulating right. the, the commodities traders went to had to ask the permission of the people they were supposed to be regulating to tell them that they had actually completely deregulated them. Yeah, that was this amazing moment. I was talking to this guy who was a, an aide to the head of the House Agriculture Committee, uh, who was in a meeting with. The CFTC. This is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. These are the, the that's the executive branch regulator of commodities. And this one of them just casually mentioned, "Oh, we've been handing out these exemptions to these companies since 1991." And the guy from the House, from from Congress, goes, "Really? Can I see? Can I see what those exemptions look like?" And the CFTC official seriously says to the guy. Uh, Wait, we want to check with Goldman first. Essentially, like they before they could show it to the House Agriculture Committee, they had to check with with this bank this uh, to make sure that it was all right. And that just that tells you everything about how captured the regulators are. Now, one thing you talk about too that's I think ex- going to be extremely frightening to the Tea Partiers who read about it, your book about it, and and you have some respect for for them, don't you? Mm-hmm, yeah, no, I think a lot of their complaints are legitimate, uh, definitely. It, it are the uh, sovereign wealth funds and how this is just again some of the stuff you write about in this book is so mind-boggling. It just seems like it. it you must. You couldn't must get, possibly be real. Yeah, right? couldn't possibly be real. And you must get some. I guess, and you must get some people who react to this book and the way they react to news of global warming. It doesn't matter if scientists say it's really, ha- it's really, 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 really happening. Right. But just go. No, it can't be. Yeah. No. Definitely. I. I uh, like what happened there is that I. I had a friend who worked for uh, a sovereign wealth fund in the Middle East, 
And sovereign wealth funds are basically these giant state-run hedge funds, like for for Middle Eastern countries, typically, well, all countries, but typically the oil-bearing states have these giant pools of money that they that they make, and they go around and invest in things quietly to try to grow their their piles of money bigger. I have a friend who works for one of those funds, um, and he calls me up a couple of years ago, and he says the weirdest thing happened: uh, a bunch of guys from Morgan Stanley showed up. Uh, in our offices, and they tried to sell us the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Uh, so it was me and a bunch of these Arabs and a bunch of American bankers with a slide projector saying, showing pictures of the Pennsylvania Turnpike, saying, you know, it's really in good condition, the tolls are in great shape, you know. And um, they ended up not doing that deal, the ten- Pennsylvania Turnpike, but there were lots of deals that did happen. Uh, the Chicago parking meter deal was a great example. Oh, that's just, it's phenomenally scary. Yeah, the, basically what happens is, you know, these local governments or state governments, they have a, a one-time budget problem. You know, they have a shortfall for a billion dollars or something like that. And they sell their infrastructure. Uh, in Chicago's case, they sold 75 years worth of parking meter revenue. And they typically do it through... A middleman. They do it through a Western investment bank, who then hires a Western servicing company, so that nobody knows who the actual investors are. Uh, and in the in the case of, of Chicago, the investors were, uh, among other things, the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. Uh, you know, the same people who are, uh, you know, it's it is a you know a Middle Eastern sovereign wealth fund, and they're they're like 26% owners in the Chicago parking meters, and now people have to pay their parking meters on Lincoln's birthday and, you know, all through the weekends and you can't shut it down for special fares or anything without their permission. We've ceded part of our sovereignty to these foreign investors. Well, I mean, this means literally these people are controlling the streets. Right. Which is, and through through the kind of uh, governmental financial instruments that you described, this weird uh, melding, this mating, government and and, and uh, the biggest investor banks have mated in some kind of like genetic splice. Yeah, like, it's like that movie Splice, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, with the tail and yeah. the weird feet and everything. Yeah, no, it's uh, they you know, they call them public-private partnerships. They have these strangely Orwellian, you know neutral sounding names but they're crazy what, what well there's there's some i love what you call um uh talking about orwellian i love the uniform prudent investor act <laughs> tell us about the uniform prudent investor act oh this is the one that says that they they uh i'm sorry you have to refresh my memory this, uh, this is the one uh, about the how um Banks used to have be have to be prudent oh, investors. Oh, the widow, widows and orphans yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, the widows and orphans. They used to have to be um, prudent investors, and they came up with this prudent investor act, which essentially there used to be one controlling uh, force. That was the federal government that said, if you're investing the funds of you know retirement funds and right. CalPERS and stuff, you have to invest it wisely in T bills or something, not something insane. Like- right now, you're required to to. There has to be a growth aspect to 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 all to all of those funds now, right? Isn't that, that, that <laughs> yeah. that's what it is? Yeah. you have to make uh, some speculative investments. Uh, you have you have a you have a, a, a commandment, a broad commandment to diversify uh, is the is the new rule, which means that you you know in the old days. Uh, all these funds had to be pretty much absolutely safe because the most important part uh, aspect of all of them was that you weren't going to lose your money. Now they are forced to diversify, which is what put, which is why they, a lot of them were pushed into buying, for instance, oil futures and commodities um, because they had this new uh, commandment that they had to get into different kinds of markets. You you conclude. Uh, you you also. I have to say, uh, I'm a. I found the part on the the portion on healthcare. It was tough to read, mm. Be, not not because I didn't understand it, not because it wasn't well written, because it was just agonizing to see what had actually happened with the healthcare reform bill. Yeah, uh, with that, uh, I was really trying to show because we didn't really talk about Congress in Rolling Stone at all in the last couple of years. We mm-hmm. we and I and I in the book I, I didn't get a chance to really talk about how Congress worked and that whole interplay between financial services and Congress, and this was an opportunity to talk about how a financial industry, the insurance industry, how they worked hand in hand to protect what was essentially a subsidized market. Uh, you know, that's a per- pervasive theme of all these different chapters is that uh, these companies find a way to get the government 
to create a subsidy for them, whether it's in the commodities market where if you want to invest in oil futures, you have to do it through one of these banks that has an exemption. So they have like they, they basically have a license to be the permanent middleman in those transactions. Mm-hmm. In health insurance, they have an antitrust antitrust exemption. They, they are the, the all of these companies are basically legally allowed to collude and set prices. Uh, and throughout this entire process of healthcare reform, the one thing that they wouldn't touch was this antitrust exemption. They eliminated the whole idea of healthy competition from the outset. And uh, that was what I was trying to show mostly in that chapter. Well, two, I mean, just the your portrait of the Obama administration is absolutely unflattering and of the, the whole campaign. I mean, basically, you say he, he lied and deliberately lied and deliberately misled uh, his supporters. Yeah, I had a I had a disagreement with some of the editors at Rolling Stone about this. Uh, a lot of them seem to think that um, you know Obama was just ultimately bowing to the to political reality, unforeseeable political realities. I didn't see it that way. I I saw it um, as a, a, a very cynical calculation that they thought they they knew at the at the outset that that, that they were only going to ask for a certain thing, that they were only going to get one thing. But they needed to get the public support. They needed to get elected. And so they promised things like drug reimportation. They, they promised that they were going to get or argue for uh, to allow the government to negotiate bulk rates for Medicare uh, for pharmaceutical purchases. But as soon as they got into office, they just really surrendered a lot of these uh, a lot of these initiatives at the outset. And they, for instance, you know, they did a campaign ad against Billy Tozen, the head of the, of the pharmaceutical lobby. They actually ran an ad as against Tozen as an example of everything that they hated about Washington. Here's a guy who worked and he was a congressman and he went to become a lobbyist and that's not who we are. And then they immediately had backroom meetings with Billy Tozen and they they worked to behind the scenes structure the the entire health care bill. And I thought it was very, very cynical and I, it was disappointing because I liked Obama when I was covering him. You talk about the bubble machine and you talk about a couple of techniques uh, they use called a laddering and spinning. Yeah, uh, this is how we create these kind of bubbles, and that's the, that seems to be that's our future is are just a series of bubbles until there's nothing left underneath, and we are a nation of uh, McDonald's employees. Yeah, all bubble economics is 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 a if you think of Wall Street as a giant casino, right? And and what happens when in a casino? They're always trying to get you in. The more you're in the casino, the more you play, the more you lose, the more they win. Uh, and that's all bubble economics is. It's, it's, it's getting people to, to, to ride a, an artificial investment euphoria, uh, and they just chip away with fees and services until one, when the bubble collapses, the money they've actually made servicing the entire affair it's like the house taking its cut in a casino. That's real money. That money really disappeared, but your investment is gone. You see what I mean? So, uh, and that's what happened in the internet stock bubble. These guys, all the banks made of fortunes, um, you know, launching these internet, these IPOs, these these uh, these internet stock companies, uh, and people invested all their money in these companies. And when that blew up, they lost all their money. But the the fees that the banks made. They still had it. They made that money. That money was, was was the only thing that survived was the fees that they kept. And that's what bubble economics is. Come into the and play the game. Let's move money around for a while. Let's create a, a whole bunch of excitement and euphoria. And in the end, everybody's going to lose except us. We, we're just going to take the proceeds and buy houses and you know the villas in France and you know Maseratis and and yachts and and that's where the money went. You know, you use a, have a lot of humor in this book. This book is is hilarious to read, if though it's also insanely depressing at right. the same time. <laughs> right. So, and, and I think that's a really interesting approach. It, this is this, you play this like a, a a black crime caper comedy at, at levels that are truly mind boggling. Yeah, I mean. I, yeah, you have to have a really sick sense of humor, I think, to really appreciate it because it the the. And I'll give you an example. This isn't in the book, but uh, an example of the kind of mordant black humor that that rules Wall Street. You remember the 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 case involving Goldman, and they they created this um, uh, massive of 
of mortgage-backed securities that they, that they knew was going to fail. And then they, with with that guy Paulson, uh, uh, John mm-hmm. Paulson, they sold the it Abacus. off. Abacus fund, right. Well, there was another bank that did almost exactly the same thing, and they created this fund full of uh, basically crap mortgages that they knew were going to blow up, and they sold this off to unsuspecting foreign banks. But they called the fund Millstone, you know, like like that's the level of humor of these guys. I mean, you create a billion dollar fund that you know is gonna is gonna you know break some janitor's life savings, and you and you have the gall and the balls to call it Millstone. I mean, it's incredibly funny on the one hand, but it's it's just so dark and depressing on the other hand. And that to me is it. it that's kind of what this is all about. Well, it's so interesting, too, that these people who did this, when they were finally dragooned in, in front of, uh, fairly recently, in front, in front of the Congress, <laughs> they, they weren't sorry. They, no. they, they didn't even feel like they'd done anything wrong. No. In fact, what was so interesting is they all had this attitude of being irritated that they, that they had been put out and forced to come all the way down to Washington and answer questions by these idiot senators. Um, they really believe that they 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 genuinely believe that what they're doing is right and that the that they're smarter than everybody else that they're entitled to make this money and they're really they really are unrepentant and that makes them fascinating characters i mean it makes it makes them great literary villains but they're also just they're really really compelling and and interesting characters because you cannot for the life of you figure out where it comes from it's just it's a, it's a it's a riddle well, that's what's so so great about this. I mean, the, these are people, and, and in fact, to a certain extent, they're right. They understand, I think, the the way that the this new form, this new kind of genetically spliced form of government and high finance works better than many of the senators do. The senators are, are almost, in a sense, that they're lackeys. Oh yeah, they're hicks basically in their eyes. These 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 are these are like the help. You know, uh, and for them to have to sit and take, you know, somebody like Carl Levin yelling at them is an incredible indignity. I mean, you you could see the disgust and, and the outrage in their faces while they were taking this abuse from the senators. They really think of these guys as, I mean, look, how much are they making? $100,000, $200,000? How much does a senator make, you know, compared to they, what they make? That's how they measure human worth. Uh, and they think of these guys as losers. So it, it was a it was a very strange scene, definitely. Now, as a reporter, you know, you've revealed all this in a book that, you know, I I have to admit, I had when I went to my bookstore recently, I had trouble finding it. It was like one down there shelved underneath the business books. And mm-hmm. I think it's a book that should be like, you know, in uh, displays at the front of the store saying, read me because I matter. Right. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, I, I'm wondering, do you think that... Um, there, do you think that we are stuck with this? Are these people really just going to drag us down over the next thirty years? What do you see as the future? I mean, it it looks pretty grim to me. Although the one thing I will say is, as I as I travel around the country and I and I have to cover politics, I find more and more people understand this stuff because mainly because they've had to personally they've had personal conflict with with the financial services industry somehow. Either they've been foreclosed on or they've been wiped out by credit card debt or they've lost 40% of their pension funds value or, or something, they've had to get an education the hard way. Or, you know, I was in Birmingham, Alabama lately, and the people down there are paying a 1,200% sewer bill because their town was like Greece. They got into a crooked interest rate swap deal with J.P. Morgan Chase. Now those people, they're all experts on interest rate swaps, these, these you know, sort of southern guys who, you you know, good old boys who wear the mesh hats and everything. They know more about this stuff than I do. And I think people are 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 starting to get it, and that will lead to I I hope elected officials who get it more. And but until I think that's far off in the future. In the meantime, you know these guys kind of have a monopoly on running this bureaucracy, which is really depressing. Well, you know, one of the things too, I I thought that this book did really well is it's rather prescient because when you're talking about all the uh, mortgage-backed securities stuff. 
and how that you actually say at one point they that just must have been a mill to create these things and now we've recently found out there it was in fact a mill and that all this bad mortgage paper was not just bad in terms of being bad investments it wasn't even created the paperwork wasn't even done right yeah it was it was all it was all fraudulent it was it was you know they they rushed in a, they were basically in a in a criminal scheme to to defraud their investors and once they sold off all these mortgages to these guys you know they just took the money and ran they had no interest in keeping up tidy paperwork after that uh you know you've already committed fraud once why bother why bother doing the, the paperwork you know it was just a wasted expense at that point and that's why we're, i was in a foreclosure court two weeks ago and Every single case that I saw had fraudulent paperwork in it. And I asked these lawyers, how many of these these foreclosure cases have bad paperwork? Every single one. I mean, literally every mortgage that was was securitized, and that's like 99% of mortgages in the last four or five years, they're all messed up because none of them, they, they all basically were illegally involved in this scheme. That That's what it was all about. And this this could have some seriously bad repercussions for our economic system. Yeah, because mortgage-backed securities are in everything. They're 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 loading up the they're larding up the balance sheets of all these banks. The Fed has billions and billions of dollars of this stuff. We the taxpayer own billions and billions of dollars worth of this stuff and they're all seriously overvalued right now. We we basically have undeclared massive undeclared losses on the on the on the balance sheets of the Fed. And, uh, you know, all these banks and sooner or later, those losses are going to going to come out. The true value of these things is going to come out and that's going to result in another correction. You know, uh, I there's a book by Stanislaw Lem called A Perfect Vacuum. And in it, he uh, reviews different books. And one of the books he reviews is called Pericalypsis. And this is the idea of an apocalypse that has already come to pass, but nobody noticed in the, in the general haste. And I think that we are currently in a pericalyptic situation. It sounds like from what your description. Yeah, uh, well, it's certainly, again, just going back to that foreclosure court, the lawyers that I talked to are, are already like, Doomsday's already happened, you know. Right. You know, we're we're already in a in a place where the 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 legal system is completely dysfunctional. Uh, there's, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about the foreclosure crisis is, is that it's it's almost like a a spaceship that's disintegrating. Like you have these cases where the banks will offer somebody modification. Uh, and then at the same time, another wing of the company will be foreclosing on them literally in the same minute because the different limbs of, of this monster don't know what each other is doing. You know, you'll have one, you'll have the legal department offering somebody, uh, you know, uh, a mediation. And then you'll have another wing of the company that's go- breaking into a house and changing the locks and stealing the furniture because it's all discombobulated. These companies don't know. Uh, what they're doing. It's it's all, it, it's a giant discombobulated bureaucratic monster that's off its rails. Uh, and if you see it up close in person, you'll, it, it just looks like a catastrophe happening. It's playing out across all levels of society. That's what I find so interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I met people, it's not all low-income people. It's not all no. poor people. I, I met middle to upper class people who had their houses taken from them by mistake two days before Christmas. I met this one this one lawyer whose whose client uh, had was was kicked out of his house by mistake uh, two days before Christmas, and then got a letter a month and a half afterwards. We're sorry we foreclosed on the wrong house. Uh, would you sign this paperwork to make sure that we can you know tra- transfer the deed now correctly to somebody else? You know, and th- this kind of stuff is happening everywhere, and it's not restricted to poor people. It's 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 just bureaucratic chaos. I've been speaking with Matt Taibbi. His new novel, his new book is called <laughs> Griftopia. Thank you for speaking with me, Matt. Thanks so much, Rick. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.